Season three of We Are All Americans was recorded in the summer of 2020 in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic and the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Welcome to We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jackwis, and I'm here with my friend Cole James. We are chatting via Zoom because we're still dealing with the pandemic. Um, so welcome. Thanks for joining me. What made you decide you'd want to participate in this project? Um, well, I think um, I I think it really kind of stems with the fact that um, my both of my grandmothers have passed, mm. and I I still feel like I wish I would have had more time with them as an adult just to hear the stories and tell the stories, but now. Um, that I am older, it's a little bit easier for me to kind of get the truth out of my family uh, in a way and hear the stories that kind of brought all of us to this place. And I feel like it's okay to take some time to reflect and share. And I think also because the body of work that I'm making especially right now within the last like three or four years has really been centered on searching out ancestral information in mm. general. Yeah. And when I learned about that work, that's why I was like, Ooh, Cole would be good for this conversation. Cause sometimes you talk to people and they're like, I don't really know that much about my family and where they're from or how they got here. Or we just didn't talk about it. How old were you when your grandmothers died? Um, I was in my 30s. Okay. I was uh, so you know this was right when I had just moved to Los Angeles, um, and they both I lost both of them in the same year. So and and I think that was a point when me and my parents both like got close because I realized, you know, they definitely love each other, but they both were suffering this loss. Um, it wasn't like one passed and, you know, my, mm. my, my other parent kind of helped that parent through it. It was like, they were both going through this simultaneously and both my mom loved my dad's mom and my dad loved my mom's mm. mom. In fact, my dad was her favorite of all of her son-in-laws. Um, so it was, uh, it, during that time, I really kind of learned more about my parents and got a chance and it's just, you know, it's it's too bad that all the stories come out at a funeral instead of before. I know. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not the first to kind of talk about this in, like, full transparency. I have a, um, a I guess, second cousin, my mom's cousin, second cousin removed. I don't know. I don't know the words of that. Um, my family has an interesting way of talking about family in general. But he actually wrote a book about our family. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a contributor, a writer. Uh, he talks a lot about race and education and politics. His name's Leonard Pitts Jr. Um, and so he wrote a book called Becoming Dad about my mother's side of the family, my, my grandmother's side of the family. Mm. Um, and so I'm not the first. I think I have different stories. Um, and then, of course, I have the stories from my dad's side of the family. 
What kinds of stories stand out as the most memorable or things that stand out the most that you'd want to share? Well, I think, and I, yes, I think this story stands out to me, but I think given what's going on right now, it just has greater significance. Mm. Um, and it kind of centers around my dad. And so my dad's dad had like 15 or 16 brothers and sisters. Wow. And my dad's dad, who is still alive today, um, has not been in my dad's life for most of his life. But my dad's aunts, so my grandfather's sisters, Mm. um, took care of everybody and took care of everybody's kids. And my dad would just go away for the summer or travel to the south to go visit with them. And so he developed a brother-like bond with all of his cousins and their cousin. So his relationship with one particular, I call him Uncle Odell. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Odell is probably one of my favorite uncles. Technically, he's not my uncle. He's my dad's cousin. Mm-hmm. But um, they told me a story that actually came out during a family reunion all the pictures came out and we were talking about Odell. My dad told me a story about he and my uncle and he and uncle Odell and someone else, I think it was my uncle uh, Ted who has passed away. They were in Los Angeles and my uncle Odell, who's a veteran had just come back from the war and the cops had stopped him. Was this Vietnam war? Yeah. And so he just got back and the cops had stopped him and the police had busted the taillight, which is a very common thing um, that police would do, mm-hmm. still probably do. Um, and he said something like, don't you know I'm a vet? And the cops just went off on him. Um, and they beat him so bad that when he went into the hospital, they wouldn't let um, my Aunt Jessie see him for several days. Wow, because they didn't want her to see how badly he'd been beaten? And nothing, of course, came, came of it, but my Uncle Odell, he, now he's been working for the post office for 40 years and he just has never ever talked about it Mm. Um, and I just find that story really interesting that his ability to still work for serve with government institutions after Mm -hmm. that event right Um, was really striking and then his brother also told me a story about moving so I've been reading the book about um, the migration of of black people from the south up to the north and to the west Mm -hmm. and uh, so I asked him about his experience and he told me a story about and they're little snippets, right? Because I think for this older generation, a lot of this is, it's really traumatic and they don't necessarily want to relive it, but they want to tell me about 
what took place. Um, and so Uncle Adele's brother Paul was actually part of a group of Blacks that left um, Chicago for Minnesota. Hmm of all places and that Minnesota was giving these tickets and vouchers for work and a place to stay. Um, and so they migrated to that space. What time period was this? Um, this was in the seventies. Okay. Um, seventies, maybe even early eighties that program extended to, uh, and then my family, um, I was born in Chicago. My whole family was born in Chicago. And um, my, my dad had a job at driving the elevated train, driving the L train. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a fancy job. My grandmother drove the L. My grandfather drove the L. Like everybody, like it was just like, that was the job. And you could make, you know, in the 70s that my dad would say it was like, like 25 years old, making like $25 an hour driving the L train in the 70s. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, he he loved it. It was so much money at that time. You yeah, know? even uh, for like a twenty-five-year-old now, it sounds like a lot of money. It was a good job for him, and um, I remember, I remember that time. I lived in Chicago up until I was about five years old, and then like four and a half, five, and then we moved to Calumet. And I remember going to see my dad at the train, um, and my dad was just always just perfect you know like hair pressed manicured nails like really clean all the time and I remember that as a kid and I remember all my uncles being really like they had barber shops and they would always just be looking real good and I remember that being a thing to like take care of yourself and like care um, and then there was his decision when I, I had two brothers by the time, you know, we moved to Calumet and my dad just making a decision to move West. Mm. And so we moved to Los Angeles and my dad said, this is just like Chicago. So making the decision to then move further East outside of Los Angeles And now here's a person who went from manicured nails, pressed hair, um, driving a train, which is, you know, it's not manual labor, to paving gravel and working for the city Hmm. um, in the Inland Empire. Do you know what made him decide to leave and come out here? I think um, it was really challenging to, to have us grow up outside of certain influences Hmm. um, in Chicago. And I think a lot of that had to do with education. Neither one of my parents have college degrees, but they understand a value in learning new things. And and, um, they had spent time as a couple together before any of us came along in Los Angeles and kind of saw it as a place to return to. But you know, realizing that's a little challenging to do with three kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different when you're just, you know, a young 22-year-old couple as opposed to, you know, you're now a 26, 27-year-old couple with three kids. And so I know that it had to do with them wanting something different for us, wanting 
wanting just us to experiencing experience something new and something different than what was available to us in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it definitely had to do with my dad wanting to get away from all kinds of influences and, and just to start fresh and start clean. Um, yeah. LA was just like Chicago. Like I remember our time in LA, I was in the first grade and I remember having to teach myself to read because the school I was in didn't have lights and it was like enclosed. So they would like open the door, but it, you know, it was hot. Wow. You know, coming here in the summer. And so I remember like, uh, did they have the, like the, literally the lights didn't work or they turned them off to try to keep things cool. I don't even know. It could have been one of the, one of the two things where yeah. the teacher, you know, just didn't want to teach us how to read. Um, and so my, my parents are trying to figure things out and I don't even remember exactly how I taught myself how to read. I just know I just kind of like figured out words on a page and my mom was pretty good about talking to me and reading to me all the time. Um, but then, you know, we, we moved to Moreno Valley and like, here we go from, pretty much an ethnocentric space in Chicago to an ethnocentric space in Los Angeles. And then we move out to Moreno Valley, California. And there's all kinds of people because, you know, poverty knows no race. It just mm. people. And, and there was, things were cheap. You could afford to rent a house. Um, if you had any kind of even remote, tiny skill set, you could pretty much get a job. And, my parents ended up, like I said, my dad worked for the city. My mom worked for a construction company and kind of worked her way up through that construction company to HR. Mm. Um, and it really like, I'm, I have to kind of take that time of like, it was just a, a preparatory period. It was, it was a good time to grow up in that city at that time. Mm. Things are much different now. It's a totally, completely different space. But on my block, you had all kinds of different families. And so you had the opportunity to have exchanges with, there was a lot of immigrant families on my block. There was just and a lot of just different people. And we were all, all the kids were about the same age. So we That's could like really cool. go over, yeah. So you go over to someone's house and you're sitting there and you're like, and the kids are hungry. And so they give you whatever they had. So I got a chance to eat like um, coconut candy from like my Vietnamese neighbor down the street and empanadas, you know, from the El Salvadorian family or progies from the Polish family that lived across the street. So it was, it was just, and that seemed normal. It didn't seem like it was like a big deal to have that. But I, I definitely feel like that's kind of what my parents wanted us to have. They wanted us to not be stuck in just um, understanding one kind of culture. I don't think that they were too happy about um, race relations in Chicago at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they weren't happy about it in Los Angeles. And I think they wanted something different. And it was, it was a time of you know, of my parents being able to have a little piece of something of their own 
um, and really kind of figure out what they valued and then instill that in us. Um, and when we lived in Moreno Valley, you know, it, it's like, it's funny that you say family because it got to a point in my family that we were in California. My uncle had passed away. My grandmother had moved away. My aunt had moved away. My other aunt had moved away. And so it turned like our Thanksgivings and holidays were made up of people that we weren't even related to. Mm-hmm. And we had the house where everybody went. That's awesome. Um, I came out when I was like late in my 20s, but I had a whole bunch of gay friends even when I was in high school. And it was so weird that I hadn't really come out. I didn't even like, I, I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just trying to understand like, why does the world exist? That's where my brain was at 14, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, identity was like, I don't really, I don't, why are we here? Who cares? That's who like bigger issues. <laughs> it's like, why, why are we here? Uh, it reminds me of like, in, I have this like very vivid memory of the first like rhetorical essay I ever had to write that wasn't, a, you know, kids fictional story. And it was all about like, where does the universe end? Yeah. And it was, and it was probably like third grade or something, second or third grade. And it was like huge questions. Like, why can't I figure this out? This is so important. How come no one's teaching me this? And yeah. I think one of the reasons why people came to our house was because like, there's this overwhelming sense about welcome in my Mm. family. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we don't, we don't really need you to be blood related. Um, We need you to understand the principles of like right and wrong and, and truth and honesty and hard work and care. Um, And like this weird toughness, like there's this heckling thread that is like within my family like you just kind of get heckled (laughs) and you just take it because it's funny you know there was always a lot of laughter a lot of jokes um and there's this it sounds really like amazing to be able to create that environment for kids like I keep thinking about in contrast like my when you talked about a a grandmother having 16 or so siblings and I was like, wow. And I thought the six kids on my grandfather's in my grandfather's family was big. Um, And they have like, when my grandfather's parents came to the U S they ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, and then had, had the six, I think six, five or six kids. I keep forgetting, but they all stayed. Most people stayed in Pittsburgh, except my grandfather went to New York and then eventually went to Florida. Um, but mo- like, there's still a ton of families still in Pittsburgh. And that was the place that we would go to for Thanksgiving and for Passover. Cause that's where all the extended family was. But when we moved to Florida, my mom never even invited family to our apartment. Like, and I think it was in a little ways, I think it was out of like maybe shame or embarrassment because we had this like small apartment and kind of a sketchy neighborhood and 
compared. So we would always, people would visit my grandparents' place, but never our place when we moved down there. And so I've missed that. I'm like, oh, that would have been amazing to have that extended, lots mm-hmm. of people around and um, yeah. I w- I would and have how liked that, that. the only reason that that happened is because my mom, we were renting a house in Movau and my mom told me this story late in life. And um, the company that she worked for, she told them like, I have to, I can't stay because my landlord is selling the house that we're renting. And her boss looked at her and said, go find a house and we'll buy it. You can pay us, but we need to keep you here. And that's amazing. We were, yeah, we were able to get this house. Um, and so that we could all be in, it was like the first time I had my own room and, you know, I wasn't in a room with bunk beds with my two little brothers. And, and so I think from that generosity, my mom opened the doors mm-hmm. to everyone. And then I found out other stuff about my mom working at that place. When anything would break, somebody would always come fix it. You know, like there was, and then my mom would come home with all of these dishes from all over the world, you know, like homemade lupia. And I'm like, where are you getting this? And like gifts and all of this stuff. And, and uh, she was just like, they just gave it to me. And I didn't ask who, it was just like, just beautiful things, beautiful items that people had made or people had brought back from their home space. And then I finally, when I started working there at 18, because my mom said, you need a job and I want you to work with me. The construction company that she moved up to HR? Yeah. She said, you're going to go in in each department Mm -hmm. and you're going to learn how to work in each one of these departments, just in case, like you're going to go to school if you want to. If you're going to stay at home, you have to go to school or you pay rent. It's like one of the two. That was my mom's attitude too. (laughs) Then I started learning about her practices as a manager. And it was back in the day when, you know, people didn't need their, it's a construction company. There was a manufacturer. So every day in the morning they would go out and they would hire whoever's on the line. Hmm. And my mom would make it a point to hire everyone who was on the line, even if it was like an older guy who couldn't lift anything. Um, And I asked her like, why, why do you do that? And she's like, because these are all immigrants that are coming to work. And I want to honor that space. And if you want to work, I'm going to make sure I get you a job because somebody did that for me and I'm going to do that for for the rest of the people here. In her department, um, she made it a point to hire black women um, and specifically black women with kids. She would just like train them. It would be little stuff like you got to wear pantyhose every time you come in and, you know, like just training them about how to like kind of get through this space just so they could have a job with benefits to Mm -hmm. take care of their kids, you know, and it it is little things like that, that, um, you know, my parents aren't, aren't these like super activist people, but they're the kind that just every day try to make life a little easier for someone else. Um, even when they had very little. So they ended up um, not being able to keep the house because the market crashed. 
and they couldn't keep it. Um, and even during that time, they were still helping people out and, and trying to take care of this and take care of that. And um, so it was, it, I, th- I think the stories that are here are just about everyday kindness this is what it means. Like, oh, we're Americans. This is what Americans do. We're, we're like really honored to have this. So we have to take care of each other. We have these, my mom's side of the family, we have these um, family Zoom meetings every week to organize and talk about what people need and get masks out and, and, and bleach and materials to people and take care of our, we have one elder who's left um, that's institutionalized. She's in assisted living. And it's really beautiful because um, I'm getting to know my, my cousins a little bit more and one works in health policy. Mm. And I was like, there, there it is. Like when I find out some, like so what, what someone else says, I was like, yeah, it's. And are these are, are, Relatives now all spread out across the U.S.? Out Alaska, Texas, Seattle, um, Chicago, so Memphis, everywhere. Before the pandemic, did you guys meet like that? Well, we did family reunions, and we okay. were supposed to have one this year. Uh. So I, I actually have a family reunion pretty much Uh, Like every, like one year, it's one family. The next year, it's another family. And then I have a year, maybe a break off, but usually it's like every, every other year, it's a different. That's awesome. Family reunion. And I was so lucky because they, they, they would switch off. But now because of the pandemic. Like your two parents, your, your family. Okay. Yeah. And now because of the pandemic, they're going to be in the same, in the same year. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, (laughs) one year it was in LA, which was great, but, um, yeah, that's when, that's when I collect the stories. Um, I'm, I'm the one that kind of sits with the elders and just listen. I've always liked that. And I, like with my, my husband's grandmother just died like a year ago, I think. And she was like 104. Oh, Wow. And, and he and I have known each other since the mid-90s. So when I first started hanging out with his family, they would always be like, put Michelle with Yaya because she hasn't heard any of these stories and that they would be like annoyed to have to listen to them. But I, I always, I don't know what it is. My sister's the same. Like we just have this like affinity of wanting to hang out with old people. <laughs> and I don't know if it has to do with like when, you know, my grandparents, because my, my, um, Mom, you know, we were latchkey kids, right? So my grand grandparents were retired and my mom moved us down to Florida where they a few years after they lived there. And so my grandfather lived they lived in this retirement community and they mostly they had a lot of free time. So my grandpa would be the one to like pick us up after school when we had to stay late or if and we couldn't get the bus back or whatever and shovel up shuttle us to all the different activities and sports stuff and things. And so I think I just got used to like spending time with him. And then we'd always have to, when we would go to their place, we'd always have to go visit all the neighbors because there, <laughs> this retirement community was, had a whole thing, especially like, you know, spring break in Florida. So 
families would come and then they would parade the grandkids around the neighborhood to meet the other family, like other families. And then it was at the time predominantly Jewish and it had a, they had like a temple in the center of this um, condo complex retirement community. And so they would also like for what, so Passover comes around the same time as spring break usually. So for, if there was some kind of, um, service for that or just Shabbat, they would always make all the grandkids go up to the Bima, which is like the stage. And again, it was just like, let's parade our, we're so proud of all our grandkids, let's parade them. So I, I think I just got really used to like spending time with retirees and I like their stories. It's nice. I think, yeah. And the story that, um, I, th- I have like a favorite story and I, I think my favorite story is well it's like two halves of the same story so my my grandfather at the last family reunion that we had in Myrtle Beach which is where my my family now lives Mm. my dad my mom and dad hosted it and so I got a chance to be a part of that and it was the first time I had seen my dad's dad in a really long time and I've been the whole time I was trying to get him alone so I could talk with him Mm But because he rarely comes out, everybody was around all the time. So um, I finally got a chance to kind of record him. And he told me a story about his mom and dad. And the story goes, so it's, we're talking about my dad's dad. So we're talking, you know, 100 years ago. Right. That it would be about a hundred years ago. My great grandma, yeah, like a hundred years ago. So we're talking about um, the heart of some deep stuff. Right. Um, maybe, maybe a hundred, 110 years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. So my grandfather was a, a sharecropper. So his, and I, I had to kind of school myself. Like I, I had an idea of what that was, but basically my grandfather would work on someone else's farm and then get a portion of the profits from mm-hmm. that field. Well, the white men that my grandfather had worked for heard at, heard that my grandfather was sending his daughters to school with the money, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the money was, was sending like- my my grandfather's daughters, my great aunts to school. And they are brilliant women, by the way, just, just absolutely brilliant, brilliant women. Um, and so after a while, my, my grandfather would work the whole season and the man would say, there's no yield. So I have no money for you. And so I think that that had happened twice even though your grandfather's the one picking and knows what's coming up, right? Mm. Yeah. So he just, and there's nothing you can do, right? There's nothing you can do. So he said, this will be the last year that I do this. We're moving up North. Mm. And he said to my great grandmother, I'm going to send you, and the girls first. And that kind of filled my my great grandmother with a whole lot of fear because she knew my grandfather had a temper 
And in the South, you know, being a black man in the South period is not, it's rough. Mm -hmm. Um, It's rough. And so it was actually the first time that they had ever been apart. So she went up to the North. My grandfather worked the rest of that field and then they joined um, them up in the North. And you think, was she probably scared he wouldn't make it? Yes. Him and the sons, mm-hmm. him and his sons, right? So they go, they, they're in the north, they land um, in Chicago. Now, my mom's side of the family, um, my grandmother and her sisters also around the same time, um, no, actually a little, 50 years later, they moved to Chicago. They open a gambling house and they run the numbers. Hmm. So this was before the lottery was legal. And so they were able to make money um, and were able to establish a house and then pull, bring up everybody else. Um, eventually my grand, my, my grandmother, and my grandfather opened up a diner, um, and a deli. And my mom tells me that my, my grandfather would work at the diner during the day because he wasn't allowed to work at night. Uh, he just had too much of a temper, but my grandmother would work at an, at, at the nighttime. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, it's just a different, mm-hmm. um, group of people. <laughs> And so that, those were the people that my grandmother felt the most relaxed with. And she was herself an artist. She used to sell drawings on butcher paper. And when I was a kid, they, she would make dolls that kind of like, you know, the, the I don't know if you know, cause it's like, a, it's, I don't, I don't necessarily say it's a black thing, but it was like, there were these certain kind of dolls and they had black skin and black yarn hair um, and dresses. Made out of fabric. Yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So she would make those, um, and she was just really creative. My aunt that passed away was also creative. So uh, both families, like, like figured out a way to migrate to Chicago um, and find comfort and find community there. And... You know, my heart breaks a little bit for what's going on in Chicago now. Um, But Chicago was the place where immigrants went. You know, like it was, it was the place where you go to get refuge, you know. Um, So was Los Angeles, so was New York. But yeah, I think... um, you know, and it's so hard to think about these stories now in a way, because I, I feel like they sacrificed a lot and they made it through a lot for us to be right back in it. Yeah. Um, and having come full circle. And I think they're, they're I think people are, are waking up to the struggles of the black community. But I think if they, if they really understood how much it took for them just to 
move and leave it. And then, you know, I feel like part of these stories that I'm hearing, they, they share this, this trajectory of, of having to kind of move away and isolate, um, like move away from your whole family in order to like build something new. And like, how do you keep a black community strong where they keep having to do that over mm-hmm. and over and over again? Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost the way you're describing it feels like, like being an immigrant in your own country. It definitely, it 100% feels like that. Um, or I can, I, I can understand how there's similarities. Yeah. Because it's, it's reminding me of the, what it takes for some, like part of why I started this project was I was feeling like, um, watching like I found my grand great grandfather's naturalization papers among some letters and and I know because of the date that he only became a citizen after he served in the US military in World War One. And I remember thinking like what? Who would give their who would risk their life to serve a country that does not yet recognize them as a citizen? Like that sounded for lack of a better word, crazy. Like, it was just like, wow, who, what, and I don't know enough about if he did it to get, like, if he knew if I do this, I'll get citizenship or if what the reasoning was. But I, I, I've often found like, felt like in all the years that there's all these big immigration battles and arguments, it's like, you have to understand what it takes for someone to feel like whatever their situation is, is bad enough that they've got to uproot, whether it's leaving us moving across the country or to another country that, that, that risk that that it takes, the upheavals, the disconnection that it creates with their family, like everything to not, to, to me to like not have empathy for that impulse to not understand, to feel like, they don't deserve to go there. It's cr- crazy, and it and I, it's, it's it sounds really similar that you you know you leave a certain part of this country because you feel it's not hospitable. So where right. else you head north? What yeah. what else is better? Yeah, and it reminds me of like another story that they told me, and and I'm still like kind of piecing through these. They're like fairly new in my space, so I still have to kind of like. I started searching for more information, but it was very it was very hard to find. So there was during the Vietnam War, there was a town right outside Chicago where a lot of my family lived, a lot of black people lived, and they started noticing that I guess when the draft would come, there was only like a certain amount of numbers or names that were supposed to be called. But after a while, like from this community, it was like almost all the community was being called. Uh. And so um, one night something happened and the draft office just blew up. Nobody knows what happened. (laughs) And I think like when they told me that story, I was just, I was so sad that, that, that that had to become part of the narrative. Yeah. Did, was your father old enough to get drafted? He was. And yeah, he lived mine, in that town. And he what? He lived in that town. 
Uh, so he did he go? No, because it blew up. Oh, so before he got drafted. A lot of that community were just not making it back. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much about Vietnam that I think we haven't really even uncovered. Yeah. Um, My father got drafted, and the story he's – he really doesn't talk about it. And I'm pretty sure it messed him up for real, like big, but he, he's like, he's talked about, he was in college, but he was, he said he majored in billiards, broads and booze. And so he was, and your dad would get along just fine. So he was failing (laughs) and that something about that was partly why because I think you could sort of try to escape it if you were in college, but I think that was why he he d- couldn't avoid it. Um, I think that's why we moved out of Chicago because mm. my my parents loved they still love to have a good time, you know they they loved it. I remember going. It was like you know I grew up. So in those my, are the influences you were not really wanting to name. Yeah, I think because yeah. I, I remember they, we would go to parties with us. It was when that thing, that was a cool thing. And you just knew how to behave because your parents told you how to behave. Like we would go to these parties and there would be like a room upstairs where all the kids were. <laughs> and it was like a teenager that was watching all of us. And it was fun. Like, yeah. you know, it, it was fun. I don't necessarily remember sneaking out to have a drink. I remember being like, I want to taste that. And like tasting and be like that yeah that was also like like my I do the my parents divorced when I was really little like before elementary school and he only lived we only lived in the same town until I think I was I think he moved when I was in fourth grade or right before fourth grade so we did spend weekend some weekends with him and his mom when his mom was still alive and but he would take us to bars and and like we would go to a softball game with his, like him and his buddies, he played softball. We would go to a game and he didn't really know, like at a place that had no bathrooms. And I remember him saying like, oh, go. Nicole and I would be like, we have to pee. And he'd be like, well, oh, oh, just go behind that wall. Like w- without realizing like how much more complicated that is for girls. Yeah. And then take us to, to like sports bars. And at the time I remember, my, and my mom, we'd come home and she'd be like, so what did you guys do? And we'd tell her and she was furious. Like, what is, where is he taking you? But, you know, it was also like a different time period. So they didn't really. Yeah. I think that definitely was the, the influences that my dad was like, I can't get out. I can't get away with this. You know, my friends don't get that. I got these kids that I kind of want something different with mm. and um, moved us. And then, wanted us so much to be like one of the reasons why I talk the way that I talk is because he would correct my speech all the time. Mm. Like I was never allowed to use slang. I always, if I wanted something, I had to ask properly and correctly. Um, My mom sent me to etiquette classes. Wow. Yeah. She taught them. She had to teach them in order to be able to to afford for me to go um but she was she was a chicago kind of beauty queen um and so it just kind of filtered in and um 
she modeled a little bit when she was in LA as a young younger person. And so it was it was like super important for for me to be what they called cultured, which I think is really ironic because I think they were just like pushing me towards like a, a a space that had like closer proximity to whiteness so I could could like pass through those it's those like an, an assimilation yes mm-hmm. and I partly feel like I don't if I explained it to them that way they'd be like what we just didn't want you to be ghetto that's what that's probably exactly what they would say you know we didn't yeah. it was all kinds of rules like um, this is actually like a full-on like regular head wrap, but I was never allowed to go outside with a bonnet and house shoes and tank tops. Like you, like you, you got yourself together. Um, when you went outside, you came inside, you took your good clothes off, you put your house clothes on. Did your, did your mom wear makeup and your grandparents, grandmothers wear makeup? Yes. Cause my, so it's all, all my, my grandmother and her sister were very much like, you don't even check the mail without your full face done. And the same, like she wore like this, I have one of her house coat dresses that I still wear, but she wore, it was like what she wore in the house. And then you get dressed to go out. Um, and my grandma had the, um, she'd get her hair done once a week and spray it. And then sleep on it with on on a satin pillowcase so it wouldn't get too messed up. And then pick it out in the morning and spray it again. You know, I will say this: like something about not having any money is that you just get real crafty. You figure out how to like make your own stuff. We I was talking to someone the other day about furniture and how like I didn't see a new piece of furniture until I was twenty five. Like my parent, my mom would always get Goodwill, thrift store, Mm -hmm. yard sale, and then we would reupholster it. Mm -hmm. I remember one time we went to the Goodwill and there was a box of silver, like silver silverware. And we spent like uh, like two weeks polishing it, all the silver. She's like, this is real. So we have to like, and it was on sale. And so we were just cleaning that silverware. Um, they still have it to this day, but I remember just being like, why are we doing this? Uh, why are we, we have plastic for, she's like, no, 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 no. This is different. It's good to have the good stuff. Yeah. My, my mom always told me this story about when she and my dad were first married, they were shopping for furniture, but my father and my grandfather, my mom's dad, were measuring this coffee table and drawing it and then went home and built it because they couldn't afford to buy it. And, and in the store, the people were like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we, we just want to make sure it's going to fit in the living room before we buy it. Yeah, you just kind of you, you figure it out. And there's a lot of that. My mom always teased me in high school um, because... Throughout elementary school and middle school, particularly, my mom was like in and out of work and off and on on unemployment and stuff. And so in high school in the 90s, she early 90s, she was like all annoyed at us. She's like, now you guys think it's cool to shop in thrift stores when we had to shop in thrift stores because we didn't have money. You hated it. And now it's like trendy and cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) How many generations do you know about in your family genealogy or history? So on my dad's side, I only know as far as, as who they call, um, my, my dad's dad's dad. That's as far as I know back on my dad's side. Mm-hmm. My mom's side, because like I was saying, um, uh, there is some documentation that goes back to where we were after we were freed. Mm. Um, and that's as far back. Now, genetically on my mom's side, um, the furthest, the, the closest relation has been Sierra Leone. However, did you, you do know, the ancestry? Yeah, I haven't done the... like my mom's cousin did it. Mm. So tra- tracing them, the matrilineal line. But if you know, if you know anything about Sierra Leone, it, it just, it's, it's a stopping point for other space. Mm. When you talk about the slave trade that, you know, people came from all over, there was already trade going Yeah, so it's kind of hard to tell. It's hard to tell. Um, so that's, that's as far. Um, and I think they said a little bit of, um, a little bit from Senegal. Um, and that's just it. And then, um, so I, we, there just needs to be more research done and I kind of want to do the ancestry, but at the same time, the like 10 foil hat person inside of me is like, but then they're going to have my DNA. That's how I like, you know, I don't, part of me has been like, I, I, this exact same reason, like, and it, and I have to say it's. Some of it got more, amp- that fear of it become more amplified with Trump and yeah. particularly his response to the Tiki Torch thing in, in um, Charlottesville. If I get really tinfoil hat, I think, okay, so if they have DNA record that I have Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, when will the evangelicals in the Republican Party round us up and ship us to Israel to start the second coming. And so um, part of me is like, "Mm, I don't know if I want them to have my records. (laughs) But it's different because I know how they got here and why they got here. Right. When I started this work six or seven years ago, I was working for Artworks LA. Mm -hmm. And part of, you know, their programming is to go to all these different institutions. And we were visiting the we were partnering with the Chinese American museum. Mm -hmm. And so we were going to the temples to, for the, so the teaching artists can try to connect with the subject matter that was happening. And so we went to the space and this, I, I don't know if she was a board member or just a guest, but she was a white lady and she looked at me and I had on a scarf that was part of a suit, a Ghanaian suit my dad had bought my mom and she couldn't fit it anymore. I'm wearing mm-hmm. this scarf and this woman looks at me and says, oh, can you trace your family back to Africa? And I kind of just looked mm-hmm. at her like, no, but yes. <laughs> I think that was really like the first time that I had this overwhelming sense of loss. Mm. 
And it's a loss that resides on in a, like with and, and coincides with black culture in America, which is a thing. And then at the same time, not a thing because there there's different experiences um, that black people share coast to coast, rural mm-hmm. city, you know, depending on how, how many, like, are they first gen, second gen, like they, from Africa, they're still considered black when they're right. here. Yeah. Um, even though they're not, they're, they're, they're African. Um, but I remember just feeling like that space is why I can't be settled. My spirit can't be settled. Mm-hmm. I will never know the songs, the stories, the traditions, the beliefs mm-hmm. of my exact people. Mm-hmm. And I think not knowing that on top of being oppressed. So it's like, okay, you won't acknowledge the genocide that you tried, that pretty much you you kind of like destroyed. You did what colonizers do and you destroy any remnants of that culture that strengthens And then, so I built this other thing and now you're going to oppress me on top of that. So Mm -hmm. it's like adding insult to an injury. It's like, you've already taken me from my land. You've taken me from my people. You know, there is an entire group of people that are missing their family, their friends, their their children. And And then being here. So in that moment, I said, okay, how can I begin to discover this story? Now, here I am, like, adjunct professor, zero money, beyond zero money. I think I was, like, houseless at the time, wasn't homeless. I had friends that were generous enough to kind of, like, let me rent a couch or two, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, Like, let me pop in for a couple months and stuff like that. But I had no way of thinking about it. And so I said, well what's the core at this? And I said, well, I don't feel healed. I feel like there's like this deep rooted seed in me that is cut open and split and can't grow. Right. Because I have, I don't have, I don't have the earth. Right. I don't have the soil to make this grow. This great sense of loss, this digging out of loss is universal in regards to the response to like colonialism. Uh But that an overlining theme and the theme that comes from the stories of my family is that even when you're displaced, that you still, that it's not necessarily all the time that someone else gives you the culture. It's your opportunity to build something new, to build upon the remnant Mm -hmm. you have from the past and then make something new. And then I think about the way my family ran their household. And it was definitely about taking these remnants of tradition and love and finding new entry. Maybe my generation, I definitely blame it on millennials, but you know, I don't know. But there's this idea that culture just exists, that it's like a passive thing. And culture is built every day. Mm-hmm rituals are the things you do every day. So if every day you don't talk to anyone, you don't go outside, you don't say hello, you don't break, break bread. Um, you don't like, you don't do these things and culture can't 
be built. And then I kind of think about, I have these rules um, with new colleagues where it's like, we don't talk about race unless we've sat down and had a meal. Um, Mm -hmm. And that kind of is like my way of building a culture. Um, now I'm like, when did we eat together? I'm trying to uh, remember. We, I'm sure we have. At a cafeteria. meeting. At a meeting. When you shared your spoon. Oh, at a faculty, like at academic assembly or one of those meetings. Yeah. What are you fearful of and what are you hopeful for? Um, okay, so here's the thing. I have these real valid fears. So I'm staying in this place. And I've been here for two days Mm. and I have this reoccurring like little panic moment that for lack of a better word, a Karen will come to the door and ask me what I'm doing here. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like preparing myself. I'm like, well, why don't you go downstairs and see the name on the show that's below this and the building that this apartment is above and like Google that name and see if that person looks like me and then you can go back. But you've you've rehearsed what your response would be. Yeah. Or having Case, a con- yeah. con- be like, what are you doing here? You're not yeah. Chris. There's Chris. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's just, uh, I have those kinds of fears. Like, you know, there's just the normal fear of like being out there and having some white person just like make a decision that could cost me my life. Cause Ohio's not a very diverse place. It's a weird place. So what are you hopeful for? Ah, uh, I'm hoping that I get to just keep making the work I want to make. Um, I'm hoping that my vision for the world will be realized. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that people, enough people are waking up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hopeful that that little portion that is waking up will act mm-hmm. and the portion that's already been there will now get like more backing and support mm-hmm. and that I can kind of put my hands off of like the like radical being down the door and it can just be a space of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can like, like inch my way away from some of the like more punitive protocol and into a space of creating um, and that I can now start to advocate. Like I never wanted to be an activist. I wanted to be an advocate. Mm-hmm. But then circumstances made me an activist and made me a very loud like accountability I just wanted to get into the institution and and use the resources to help people that need it right and then I started to need stuff Mm. like a paycheck (laughs) so um advocating and then advocating for more equity and advocating Mm -hmm. for more accountability because I realized that there you know my hope is that accountability will be across the board and not just for people of color, not just black people will be held accountable, but that everyone will be held accountable 
top to bottom. So that's my hope. But I really, I just want to make work. I just want to be able to travel. I really hope they find a vaccination for this before November. Oh my God. Yeah. And I have just one last question for you. What do you think it means to be American? Ooh. I think... I... It's hard. I think what it means to be American is to be able to admit that there's a lot of work to do. Hmm. It is American to criticize. It is an it is American to rebel. It is American to not trust the government what we have to evaluate is, and I don't know if this is still true, but I remember maybe about four or five years ago, the saying was that we are one of the youngest nations with the oldest constitution (laughs) and that not being something to brag about. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting um, to think about. I think right now what it means to be American is to say, this is not working and it needs to be fixed, and it's not gonna be fixed by continuing more of the same. Mm-hmm. I think that is American. It is American to say no to racism, to say no to oppression, to say no to white supremacy. It's That's American. No part of this country was built by Americans in a way, right? Mm-hmm. It was built by slaves and immigrants. Yeah. All the things that are natural that we love already belonged to the indigenous American peoples. So everything that's great about this has nothing to do with what colonialism brought here. It's what was built by slaves and immigrants. And everybody here, with the exception of indigenous Americans, were immigrants. So you can't really even like chalk that up to just white people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this is a country of immigrants and we forgot that. Um, And some of us chose to come here and some of us did not choose to come here. Yes, this is true. This is so true. This has been a fabulous conversation. I feel like we could continue for days but we don't need to record it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. My pleasure.